Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. LMFM Podcasts. Brought to you with Cartmacross Credit Union. Getting hitched? Cartmacross Credit Union likes to say I do when financing your wedding loan. O'Neill Street, Cartmacross or cartmacrosscu.ie. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Monday morning, the 8th of April. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The EU's chief Brexit negotiator, Michel Barnier, is in Dublin today. On Wednesday, the leaders of uh, the 28 European countries will meet for an emergency European Council summit. If Mrs May cannot outline a credible Brexit plan by Wednesday, it remains possible that the UK will crash out of the European Union by Friday. Of course, by Wednesday, the leaders will probably agree to a long extension to the British deadline, or Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn may even come up with a credible plan to put to Europe. If you're in any doubt about about how difficult that might be for some members of the Conservative Party, Boris Johnson spells it out in black and white for us in a letter to the Irish Independent today. He says, There are times when the news seems so bad and so disheartening that you can scarcely believe it. For years now, we Tories have been pointing out the obvious, that the Marxist Jeremy Corbyn is not to fit, is not fit to govern the United Kingdom. He says in order to get Corbyn on side, the government is apparently willing to abandon the central logic of Brexit and that remaining in the customs union would mean repudiating a manifesto pledge and tearing up a promise made thousands of times in Parliament and elsewhere. But, he says, it's actually far worse than that. It would make a, a total and utter nonsense of the referendum result. We'd be out of the EU, but in many ways we'd be run by the EU, the worst of both worlds and forever, bound by European tariffs, but no say in deciding them, what he calls economic serfdom, being a rule taker with no say in making the rules. Boris Johnson says all of this is unacceptable. Sean Defoe, our political correspondent, is on the line. Sean, good morning to you and thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, It's obviously a very important week. Uh, What do you think uh, will happen come the end of this week? It's all clear as mud, really, isn't it, after (laughs) your introduction there? Um, I think we'll see a long extension by the end of the week, to be honest. I don't think there is a huge amount of hope that the talks between Theresa May and Labour are going to achieve anything, you know, some government of national unity or, or anything close to that. And I think the EU are, are tired. Certainly the, the impression I get is they don't want any more of these rolling cliff edges of months of uncertainty. So that we will see probably a long extension with a, an exit pause, this flex extension as they're calling it, whereby we'll see maybe up to a year of an extension to Brexit with an option for them to 
jump out or to exit Europe if the House of Commons agrees to the withdrawal deal. So at the moment, I think that's probably the most likely scenario out of this week. All right, and all 27 of uh, the 28 countries, uh, apart from the United Kingdom, of course, has to deal, uh, has to agree to this. Uh, I suppose uh, there had been some concern that not all of them would, that France, for example, might veto it. But when uh, the Taoiseach says uh, he believes everybody will be on board, I take it uh, that's said with some degree of knowledge. Yeah, exactly. And I don't think many of the countries will be particularly happy with doing that. They don't want to talk about this for another year. They don't want to have this hanging over everybody for 12 more months of uncertainty. But the reality is, if they don't extend it, the other option and the current legal status is that on Friday, Britain leaves without a deal and crashes out of Europe. And we have all the implications of that, which are probably worse than dealing with it all for another 12 months. So I I think the hope maybe from some EU leaders is this would take a bit of the heat out of it, a bit of the sting out of it, and maybe give Theresa May a bit more time to work this deal around. The votes have been getting closer and closer in the House of Commons in terms of supporting the withdrawal agreement. So if she's given a few more months, then perhaps she'll be able to get that across the line. And maybe uh, they would hope that in the meantime, it will take some of the media attention off it and they can actually focus on the issues that they've been wanting to talk about at these EU Council meetings. And how many more months? Uh, Mrs May wrote last week looking for the date to be pushed out to the end of uh, June. Will that be acceptable? I don't think so. It's very possible she could have it done by the end of June, but I, I don't think a lot of EU leaders are particularly confident because she, according to one civil servant that I've talked to, she's used up a lot of her political capital in Brussels. She's gone there a couple of times saying, oh, I'm nearly there, I'm nearly there, give me a little more time. The last EU Council meeting where she requested this current extension, she did give EU leaders the impression that she had the numbers, that whatever was going on behind the scenes, she would be able to get this withdrawal agreement passed. That hasn't turned out to be the case and was kind of in the exact same situation we were three weeks ago with things. So I don't think they particularly want to deal with that. They've already rejected June 30th once as a possible date when she asked for it. So I would think it's more likely that they will impose Europe will impose their timeline on the UK rather than accepting the one that Theresa May wants. Right, and six weeks out from uh, the European elections, what does all of that mean? Yeah, well, it would mean if it was a long extension or even if there was an extension until just June 30th, the UK would have to field candidates and they're putting the groundwork in place for that. Now, Theresa May admitted as much in her letter to Donald Tusk. I think there may be a possibility that we could see some sort of a clause in whatever extension is there, whereby if the House of Commons does agree to the withdrawal agreement before May 22nd, and May 22nd would be the date before voting starts across Europe, of course, on a number of different days in different countries, that maybe they wouldn't have to formally elect uh, MEPs, but that is leaving it very late in the day. So it looks as though they will have to, and that, of course, provides a number of real uncertainties for people Mm. because suddenly they've elected people to a parliament that they're planning to leave but also other countries, including Ireland, we've got more MEPs now because we were they were supposed to be gone by mm. this stage. Well, we so should Ireland have two was, extra MEPs, shouldn't we? That's right, yeah. We mm. should be electing 13, and instead, if they don't leave, we will have 11. Now, we're still going to elect those 13, but it's an extra candidate in Dublin and an extra candidate in the Ireland South constituency. And what is going to happen there is that if the UK hasn't left and this parliament sits, we can't do 13 into 11. So mm. the, whoever finishes last in the Dublin constituency and whoever finishes last in the Ireland South will effect, effectively be put on the bench and they'll have to be the subs. They won't be able to take their seats straight away and will be able to take them when the UK leaves. But there's a few things we don't know about it yet. For example, if 
they will they be paid their annual fee salary during that time if they are uh, say if a TD is elected in Ireland South if Billy Kelleher is the last person elected and has to sit on the bench can he still sit in the doll or does dual mandate issues come into it now the suggestion mm. seems to be they'll ignore that dual mandate for the time being he'd be able to sit and then take up the MEP seat whenever the UK does leave but it just makes things tricky and we're not the only country in that situation there's other ones who have taken up from the UK's alloc- allocations so it just makes things a little more complicated mm. and there's the European Commission of course yeah there's the European Commission as well so would they elect a commissioner it would kind of seem like a farce if they would but there hasn't been a huge amount of suggestion as to you know mm. would another country have two it's not so much an issue of electing more people to that you know but um also you could argue that they would be left in that state of limbo where they have absolutely no representation so there's lots of, of implications to to it and europe i suppose is worried i mean a lot of people would simply suggest well just don't run the european elections it's farce of an election to run and you would argue that and i'm sure it will be argued by nigel farage and others who do field candidates in it mm. but then you could have the case where you have Add democratically elected parliaments, which is undermined by the fact that one of the members has no members in it. And any decision that that parliament then takes, if the European Parliament were to make a decision, uh, you know, on roaming or some of the other things that they've talked about, it would be open to huge legal challenge because the UK wouldn't have any representation in it, despite legally still being a member. So it, it is quite complicated the more we kick mm. it out. And of course, then uh, there's European money, and Europe can only spend what it's bringing in. And will the United Kingdom be obliged uh, to contribute uh, to next year's European budget? You'd imagine so. You would imagine that will be part of any extension, as long as they're still legally part of the European Union. They will have to pay it. There was the withdrawal deal has in place. I think it's forty nine billion to. Um, make up for what they wouldn't be paying in the event that they're leaving. This kind of exit fee, the divorce bill, if you like, as Boris Johnson has called it before. But you'd imagine if we do go another year and they're in the European Union, yes, they would have to continue to pay. And that will be another thing that Brexiteers will give out about and beat the drum. And I can't imagine people in the UK who voted leave would be too happy with it. Mm. Uh, and what we heard from Boris Johnson, uh, I suppose, is indicative of how... Uh, fair majority of, or a fair portion of uh, Tories uh, feel uh, that would reflect the views of uh, the 30 members of the ERG group. Uh, if Mrs May was to strike a deal with Jeremy Corbyn, uh, obviously she'd lose uh, the confidence of uh, the DUP. Are you surprised that we're not talking about a general election in the United Kingdom this morning? Well, I think it's still very much in play, but... I don't think the prospect of her actually getting a deal with Labour done is real enough for that to become a consideration. I mean, she had to reach out at some point. A lot of people in Europe were surprised that she hadn't before. Mm. And she has spent, to be fair to Theresa May, she has spent most of the last two years trying to win on side the ERG and trying to win on side the DUP. And I think last week was just an acceptance of reality that they were never going to come across for this withdrawal agreement or anything the UK would find acceptable. There's a rump of MPs there who are, would be quite happy to see no deal for one, but also were just never going to agree to anything that was remotely close to a soft Brexit. And I think the DUP are included in that. And she kind of saw some reality last week and thought, right, well, I'm not going to get these. The only other place of the vote is Labour and to go across to there. And she knew that would present problems in her own party. Is probably why she left it so late to try and do it. Mm. But anything that herself and Jeremy Corbyn have tried to agree so far hasn't got even close and the Labour Party itself is so fractioned between mm. uh, the Corbynites and the you know Blairites of old if you like uh, that, that rump of the party that's still there so 
there's not a huge confidence, certainly in Europe, and, and I would say in the Irish government probably as well, that that kind of a deal will get done. But she has to be seen to be doing something in order to go to Brussels and credibly say she's tried every alternative yeah. and then request this extension. And the same onus on uh, Jeremy Corbyn. He has to be seen to engage in the process. He has to be open to participating in these talks. He's talking, uh, but is he negotiating? Is he dealing? I, I think most people, as you say, probably would uh, expect that he's not really up for a deal with Mrs May. That's what you'd expect and, and certainly what mo- most people kind of think. I mean, Corbyn is no fan of the EU, never really has been, despite the Labour position now being a second referendum and many in his party being opposed to leaving or certainly leaving in the, in the terms that are on the table. It'll be interesting today, he's actually meeting with the leaders of Sinn Féin, Mary Lou MacDonald and, and Michelle O'Neill, so we might see some more information emerge out of that. But there just doesn't appear to be any progress on it from the Labour side. They're saying that... Theresa May hasn't spelled out what kind of uh, concessions she'd be willing to give to make Brexit softer. Mm. And they're also concerned, as they probably rightly should be, that if they suddenly get on board with this, Theresa May is in many ways a lame duck prime minister and she'll be gone for the meat of the trade negotiations. So they want something in writing or something solid enough that if Boris Johnson or someone else comes in as prime minister, they can't just completely roll back on it. So there's a lot of, even those within Labour who want a deal are facing huge barriers because they don't particularly trust the Tories to deliver this and they know they're negotiating with someone who probably won't be there when they're into the, the meat of the trade talks whenever this withdrawal team is done. All right, and we'll hear more from Sinn Féin about that meeting with Jeremy Corbyn later in the programme. But what about Michel Barnier? His visit to Dublin today comes on foot of uh, Chancellor Merkel's visit last week and the Taoiseach meeting with President Macron in France. Uh, But what will the focus be on? Will it be on striking a deal? Or what happens if, in the unlikely event, uh, the UK crashes out on Friday? Yeah, a bit of both. This is and further one of the European visits to Dublin where they're trying to show solidarity with the Irish government. We've seen, as you mentioned, Angela Merkel was here last week. Donald Tusk has been in Dublin in the last few weeks. And today, Michelle Barnier is meeting with the Taoiseach, the Taunashta, and the finance minister. So they'll discuss the current state of play and that possibility of an extension. The Taoiseach is going to tell Michelle Barnier that he is open to a long extension to Brexit as long as there's a clear plan, as long as there's a clear way forward that does come with that. But they're also going to talk then as well, as well about the no deal preparations and a lot of that will come from the Department of Finance. What exactly is in place if on Friday we do uh, the UK does crash out of Europe and of course I imagine the border is going to take up a bit of that as well because that's the one thing we still don't have a huge amount of certainty on. Where are the checks? If mm. on Friday the UK is gone and there's a cliff-edge Brexit, how is that done? The Taoiseach's kind of suggested it be done in ports, but if it's all being done in ports and the island of Ireland is being treated as a whole, will people, in the, uh, exporters in the Republic, for example, be affected by being treated the same as the UK? There's a huge amount of uncertainty. You imagine they'll talk about that. Uh, and the reality of the situation as we head into what, again, feels like another crucial week of Brexit, Groundhog Day for Brexit again, it feels like we've done mm. the crucial weeks for so long. But uh, the general state of play and solidarity with Ireland will be certainly high on the agenda. All right. Well, we're probably looking at the calm before a storm towards uh, the end of uh, the week, but we'll leave it there for the moment. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us this morning. Sean Defoe, our political correspondent. 
Now, a letter from uh, the Deputy General and Chief Operations Officer of the HSE, Liam Woods, is causing concern because it's informing management of hospital groups that recruitment and overtime is being stalled because of uh, the financial pressure that there is in the system arising from high levels of recruitment in 2018 and the consequential impact it's having on services this year. The only development posts for new and expanded services. Uh, I beg your pardon, it's only development posts for new and expanded services that will be exempted but all other recruitment is to pause for a period of three months. Paul Bell, Divisional Organiser with Sipsu's Health Division, joins us now. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us. As I said at the outset, this is causing concern. Uh, It's Labour's Health spokesperson Alan Kelly who has had sight of this letter. It appears as though he had sight of the letter before the Minister had. Yes, so it seems, but uh, we had sight in Sipter before anybody had because uh, over the period of the last four weeks it became clear that there was a recruitment moratorium going to be enforced uh, in the University Hospital Limerick, uh, whereby that Sipter had agreed uh, for a number of posts to be generated over the last 18 months, uh, mainly in support service areas like healthcare assistance mm. portals. Uh, and uh, out of the blue, about approximately three weeks ago, a letter arrived in our desk to tell us, well, we can no longer proceed with those appointments because we have no funding to do so. So we immediately ended up in a dispute, and at this moment in time, in that area of the country, we're balloting for strike action. So this this has been a creeping effect, Michael. Uh, We're well aware of it, but again, it always goes back to the fact uh, that the budget being issued to the health service executive on an annual basis is always doomed to fail because it never, ever seems to be able to catch up with the fact that more and more demand uh, is being made on the health service executive and its services. Right. Uh, so nobody can be hired, essentially speaking. Yes, and that in itself, by the way, is somewhat misleading uh, because these issues happen on a yearly basis. Last year we would have suffered a, a moratorium, although it wasn't as pronounced as this, uh, whereby uh, recruitment stopped. However, last year was the highest amount of money spent on agency staff uh, and the health service executive proved that they, they in no way could control the expenditure and for an 11 month period Michael mm. last year um, the HSE spent 318 million euros uh, which was basically up by 9% uh, and just to have a look at those figures mm. the healthcare assistance for instance was the highest amount of money spent on agency which uh, accumulated to 90 million euros followed by mm. doctors at 7 uh, 75 million euros followed by nursing and midwifery professionals okay, yeah. at 68 million. Mm. Now the reason that those points have been made... is because it's uh, never been uh, addressed. Uh, I mean that's the reason yes. why the points are, are, are the points that they are uh, and they come in the context of the nurses strike as part of uh, the solution uh, to pay more to nurses. Uh, they were to deal with agency staff uh, and to recruit people. Uh, the strike was about recruitment and retention of staff. Uh, the hospital you spoke about a moment ago in Limerick is undoubtedly the worst hospital in the country at the moment. It has the worst record for the amount of people on trolleys, 81 people on trolleys last week. What's happening? Well, what's happening is that, the, first of all, the, the plan for staffing levels in the HSE is not feeding appropriately into the budget. Uh, despite the fact that there's a, a deal uh, reached with the nurse and midwifery sector 
uh, with our colleagues in the IMO, mm. that issue won't even be addressed overnight. But that's uh, to recruit we, more staff, yeah. and well, this is a recruitment freeze. Yeah, absolutely. That's the, you're dead right, Michael, but that's to recruit more staff in a particular area. But remember, the health service executive will, will also confirm, as will the Department mm. of Health, that there are other key areas where recruitment needs to be ongoing. People are retiring from the service. Mm. Uh, people are, are leaving the service, maybe going to other jobs. And indeed, you have people uh, who are on what's known as career breaks uh, from work mm. who are now due to come back, and they're also being told, you cannot report to work. We will not be assigning you to a post. And, and is this across the board? I mean, it does include nursing and midwifery staff, does it not? Well, the letter that uh, you refer to does not uh, confirm which groups of staff there are. It, does not it confirms which ones aren't. It says only yeah. development posts for new and expanded yeah. services will be exempted. So at a, a time when the HSE and the Department of Health is negotiating with trade unions on how to recruit more staff, it's put a freeze on it and says we won't recruit any more for the next three months. Well, this is an ongoing battle, Michael, between the health service executives and the Department of Public Expenditure Reform. Uh, and what the health service executives seem to be saying to the Department of Public Expenditure Reform is, uh, we will not be continuing to spend money that you say you will not support. Uh, we cannot obviously grow staff. We have to recruit them. There's a lengthy process in trying to recruit staff. But the other thing, Michael, to say is that there's also uh, a restriction on the use of overtime. You cannot switch the health service off. Mm. If you do not have enough staff to provide those services, then you will fall back to providing services through overtime or recruitment of agencies. So that even in itself indicates that overtime is worked by health service workers at some type of a, as a leisure activity. It is not. Overtime actually is worked as a way of propping up the service. And in some areas, many members of staff right across all the grades of the health service executive will say we are working excessive overtime, which then generates other difficulties in relation to illness at work and so forth. So that's not an effective mm. and efficient way to provide health service. But is this a situation where nurses said, we're understaffed, we need more staff, and the HSE has somehow managed the situation to a stage where they're going to solve that by getting the existing worse nurses to do more work and not recruit more staff? Well, you, you refer back to the recent negotiations, Michael, uh, with the, uh, the nursing unions. Uh, ourselves will be involved in that. And that focus, Michael, has been on productivity. Uh, you know, basically deploying personnel, uh, changing rosters and so forth, obviously to try and give some relief uh, to the need for nurses in, in specific areas mm. of the health service at specific times. That in itself will take a, a period of time to filter through and to be realised mm. within the service. So, like, I still believe that, of course, that while that uh, would seem, seem to be a way of addressing the issue uh, for the health service executive and, and government, the fact of life is that the health service executive are stating quite clearly to government that all these changes that are proposed and other monies that are owed uh, to other staff cohorts have not been approved in the HSE estimate for mm. 2019, which means, of course, that monies now have to be found. If I was to take the letter at, at face value that was referred to by, by Deputy Kelly, uh, I would understand that that's the battleground is now between the health service executives and the government about how services are going to be funded 
and how the recruitment of staff is going to be funded. But at the end of the day, today, sorry, I do mm. suspect that more and more monies will be spent offline in relation to the recruitment of agency staff. And this will obviously uh, disguise the fact that while you don't really need to increase the headcount, what you do actually need to recruit the headcount because it's a 20% higher cost to hire agency staff. Well, that's completely at odds with what was agreed. I I agree, Michael. I I mean, the whole thing was to cut back on the agency staff, save the money and recruit nurses. Now they're saying, we're not recruiting nurses and you're suggesting that what they'll do is recruit more agency staff at a higher cost. Well, that's what I do believe and that's been, uh, I suppose, my opinion is based on experience uh, and the experience of the last three years where you've seen more and more expenditure on contracting services Mm. or indeed agency deployment. Now, we would have hoped in situ and other health unions, of course, is that we would have gradually moved away from that. But the battle being fought here seems to be about how these initiatives are going to be funded. And that, uh, I do believe, is is a battle that needs to be resolved fairly sharply because if not, it means that a lot of the work that's been ongoing about workforce planning, about efficiencies in the health services, will come to zero. Mm. And we, certainly in situ, are not in favour of that in the interest of people we represent, of course, but also in the interest of patients, because you cannot just turn the tap off on recruitment mm. and overtime working and expect not to have a serious impact on the delivery of services to our most vulnerable citizens. So uh, unless it's a, a de- development post, uh, nobody will be hired, or unless the service is being expanded, nobody will be hired, at least not for the next three months, and that's across every level of the health service, uh, the cleaning staff, uh, the porters, care assistants, nurses, midwives, uh, doctors, no doubt, whoever. But do you think that the nursing and midwifery staff will be surprised given the last few months that we've gone through and the the, the, the talk about recruitment and retaining staff? Do you think that nurses will be surprised they're they're included in this freeze? Michael, I can confirm that they are surprised. Uh, over the weekend, uh, uh, there has been conversations about this, and especially when it came to like yesterday, uh, and a lot of membership that we would represent across, right across the board, uh, would be commentating on this, especially in areas like you described, like the Midwest, where there's already industrial conflict ongoing about breaches of agreements to recruit people. Those of midwives to, to take that uh, cohort is are basically saying, well, it's going to be the possible to deliver more nurses. Mm if this is, in fact, in place. What I'm trying to say to you is that the, the government's concentration on expenditure and health seems to have now taken off into a concentrated focus on how the National Children's Hospital is going to be funded. And that's what I believe that a lot of the government's attention is ongoing in health. You've seen the overspend, the difficulty that's presented, uh, and there's no capital expenditure, of course, being spent on other much-needed projects within the health service. So... Again, you know, as government have said, well, we have to find money to pay for certain initiatives. I do believe that this stuff is being made up as we go along. And I have very, very serious concerns of where we're going to be leading to mm. come the middle of the year. Remember, Michael, we're only into the fourth month. We're not at the end of the fourth quarter, really, in understanding the developments that have been ongoing about efficiencies, mm. expenditure, and the likes. And at this stage... Uh, we are very, very disturbed and very, very concerned 
that we're going to end up with a, a moratorium that will last longer than three months. Uh, and we're very lucky, uh, I think, in the northeast uh, that they've uh, turned uh, the crisis in emergency departments uh, around, uh, particularly in Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital, uh, where uh, it's one of the best performing hospitals in the country now uh, and was one of the worst, but even at its worst. We never saw figures like that in Limerick last week, 81 people on trolleys. Uh, and if there's a recruitment ban there, uh, surely that's going to continue. Well, absolutely. That will not improve. Uh, the the, the uh, correspondence referred to uh, from, um, uh, from the, uh, the HSE is indicating this is a blanket operation. This is solely a cost containment initiative. It's got nothing to do with the caring for patients in accident emergencies, acute care, mm. mental care. It has nothing to do with that. This is strictly an issue concerning balancing the books. Uh, a so-called correction, uh, not even midterm. Uh, obviously anticipating that there are going to be more and more difficulties coming throughout the year. So there's also areas, Michael, which have not been discussed appropriately with the, with the trade union groups, which is a waste of resources being spent on services right across the country, uh, where basically services are contracted at a much higher uh, cost than it would be to hire people. But again, if the fixation is about headcount, if the fixation is about, well, we have to balance books, mm. I'm afraid that the improvements being made, even in areas like Our Lady Road Hospital and Drogheda, which are sometimes very, very fragile because they're depending mm-hmm. on being able to maintain staffing levels. Well, then I'm afraid we're going to be in for some difficulties. I do hope that this matter is discussed in the doll as a matter of urgency this week. It's a feeling it might be. We'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, Hi, for joining us. Paul Bell, Divisional Organiser with SIPTU's Health Division. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Student life may change with €400,000 being made available to third-level colleges to make campuses free from sexual violence and harassment under the safe, respectful, supportive and positive ending sexual violence and harassment in Irish higher education institutions framework. Nolan Blackwell, Chief Executive Officer of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre, joins us now. Good morning to you, Nolan. Good morning, Thanks for joining us. What's envisaged uh, through uh, this programme? Yeah, so this is an initiative of Mary Mitchell O'Connor, who's the Minister for State in charge of third-level education. And they identified, in the same way that the Minister for Education, Joe McHugh, has identified that the, the way consent is treated in the school curriculum needs to be updated, and that's ongoing. She identified that there was a real problem in colleges. The students knew this already. The Union of Students in Ireland has long been um, recognising this and trying to do something about it. But what she recognised, I think what this framework is allowing to happen is that the universities, the institutions are being given a framework to come together and to try and deal with how people who suffer sexual abuse and harassment on a college campus Mm. can get the support they need and can report it and that the university can deal with it properly because that has been missing, Michael. I mean, when you look at the numbers of reports in in the various college reports when they talk about the number of people who've reported sexual harassment or abuse, they're tiny. And that's not reflective of anything we know in the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre where we're on the National 24-Hour Helpline 
we hear a lot more reports than the universities themselves seem to do. Mm. And, and therefore, students don't have a safe campus if this isn't being dealt with properly because it's a problem in our modern life. Are young people behaving differently sexually now than would have previously been the case? I Well... Indeed they are. Of course they are. There's all sorts of changes in modern life. Uh, there, are, uh, there are different ways of dating. Uh, the, the dating apps have changed the way people meet each other. Uh, there are, uh, there's more uh, familiarity with drugs. Uh, that probably affects the way people make decisions mm. as well as drink. But there are some things the same as well. And in a sense, I think what this is trying to address is not the young people of today as against the young people of previous generations, but just to recognise that this is an, an ongoing issue and that in today's colleges there isn't um, an under, a proper understanding that by the colleges or put forward by the colleges that they should be places where sexual abuse and sexual harassment simply isn't tolerated. Mm. And I suppose that's really where we're at in our society right now. We have an opportunity to look at this. But that's in the minds of the young people who are attending the colleges and undoubtedly Mm. you can uh, extend that outside of uh, the college campus walls uh, because that's what people think uh, and they think it's okay or they don't think that it's wrong to behave in a certain way and I would have thought that that is a new phenomenon of sorts. Yeah, probably it is a new phenomenon. There's, although it happens every so often that mm. people that people stand up and say, "I'm not putting up with mm. this abuse and harassment." But I think you're right. There is uh, there's a, a spotlight just at the moment on the whole question of what is and is not. Uh, sexual behaviour that's tolerable and we we are also dealing with that with the base of knowing that only consensual sexual activity is all right. And so what, is, what I'm asking you Nolan I suppose mm. is has it gone from incidents, occasional incidents uh, to something that is now commonplace to act it, inappropriately it, sexually? Yeah, it, it could be that, Michael, or it could also be that people are not prepared to put up with inappropriate behaviour before right. uh, mm. anymore. And so we actually don't really know that because, again, as I would have said to you before, the lack of really good basic data is a problem. But there does seem to us to be a kind of an atmosphere in which people are, uh, the light is dawning, that you don't have to put up with being harassed or abused sexually and that you are entitled to disclose that you're entitled to support and that the person who carries it out should stop doing it Mm. and that probably is a new emphasis Right and we're talking about tomorrow's doctors and engineers and mechanics and whatever uh, the uh, very intelligent people who go to our universities uh, I'd have thought that if you asked them what sexual consent is they'd be able to give you a very clear definition why would they need to go to a course on it? Well, we, we can see that they, in fact, that is not the case. An awful lot of them, so these are very intelligent, yeah. very well educated young people intellectually. What they often don't have is the emotional intelligence to match it. They don't have the understanding of emotional behaviour and often, in truth, they don't even have the language to understand how somebody else is feeling. So they, so they, tr- there is a huge ignorance in our campuses, for one thing. And the second thing is that if the campuses, if the colleges don't turn a blind eye to this, 
if they don't say we are not accepting sexual abuse, we are not accepting sexual harassment, then they are allowing it to continue. And that and that kind of bullying, harassment, abuse will continue where it is not stopped. I mean, mm. when you when you when you listen to the students when you talk to undergraduate students who are new, newly there, when you talk to graduate students who are very vulnerable because they're neither staff nor students, and when you talk to some staff, you find that all of them are really worried and feel that the college is not a safe place for them to say that sexual harassment and sexual abuse has happened to them. There aren't the systems in place to, for instance, I, I remember somebody just hearing, overhearing a phone call to our 24-hour helpline uh, where the counsellor was dealing with somebody who, uh, who couldn't bear to go back into the class of the person who had abused her. And at the same time, there was no system in place for her to be able to safely discuss that and raise it with her college. So... This probably isn't the most earth-shattering thing that the colleges will ever have to do. And it's probably mm. something they should have done 5, 10, 15 years ago. OK, but um, not but much longer before that. Uh, there's people listening to us who went to college in the 50s, the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s yeah. and so on. Uh, yeah. And they didn't need these kind of courses because I suppose you've always had boys and girls going to college uh, and... We were all brought up in the same world. We all know the difference between right and wrong. But maybe there's part of that statement that is actually incorrect. We weren't all brought up in the same world, uh, truth be told, because we have this virtual world now uh, and how behaviour is being learnt on the internet. And yeah, that's that's like, that's part of that's part of it. So we weren't all brought up in the same world. And the other thing is, there was no tolerance for disclosing sexual abuse and sexual violence generally. I mean, that is the reality that you were told. Um, why don't you just go away? Why don't you leave it alone? If you say that, you're going to be seen as the troublemaker. It's going to affect your future, your career. So why don't you shut up and let the rest of us get on with our business? Because that is also one of the realities of life is that if you disclose sexual abuse or sexual harassment, you're normally talking about someone you know. And in the college setting, it's one of a group of friends. It's one of a, a college um society, it's it's a staff member, um, and it is disruptive of the whole society to disclose it. I think what we have now is an opportunity to say, let's not go back there. Let's not go back to places where the person who's been hurt and harmed is the person who has to put up with it, who's the person who may not be able to get on with their college career, who may have to drop out. We've seen that over the, the decades as well, those of us who were in college many years ago. The people who dropped out because they couldn't cope because there was somebody who did harm to them and they were the person who had to walk away from it. Well, that's not good enough. And we should have college campuses that emphasise that neither physical nor sexual nor emotional abuse is acceptable on those campuses. Okay. And that's really where this is starting. It's well, simply saying yeah. to colleges, will you put the systems in place to deal with it? Well, that's great, obviously, Nolene, uh, because if uh, somebody has been a subject of abuse, of course, they've done nothing wrong. They are the victim uh, and they can survive it. Uh, they can complain. Good to think that people are complaining and they can talk to somebody. Uh, a good moment to mention your 24-hour 
helpline, which is 1-800-77-8888. If somebody would like uh, to talk uh, about sexual assault or rape, 1-800-77-8888. Thank you very much indeed for joining us this morning. Nolan Nolan Blackwell, Chief Executive Officer of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and good morning to all our listeners. Pat phoned in in relation to Brexit. Can't understand, he says, and I'm a very simple-minded person. Why does the EU need more MEPs just because the UK is leaving? I just don't understand this at all, Michael. It will cost us more money. If they're going, surely we don't need as many MEPs. I can't figure it all out, says Pat. Okay. Noel says, Michael, it looks like you could be right. I think the mood has changed in recent days and people are thinking now that there'll be a long extension and who knows, the UK may not leave the EU at Mm. all. Well... (laughs) I'd believe that, but I wouldn't be certain of it. (laughs) I think that's the only thing that you can say with any certainty. There is no certainty Certainty when it comes to Brexit. That's the absolute truth. (laughs) Fran says, extension, extension. Why don't Britain do what Ireland done, reject democracy and hold another referendum to suit the Germans? Mm, Yeah, well, they may do. Okay, another listener. It will be absolutely ironic if the UK is to feel candidates in the EU elections when they can't wait to get out and don't even believe in the European Union if they're going. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, well, it could be pretty disastrous because it's going to lead to a very heated debate in the United Kingdom, Mm. which will spill over. Seamus wants to know, Michael, should we be worried about Friday? Will they go with no deal? I think... Yes and no is the answer to that. Um, not particularly, but uh, I mean, you wouldn't want to be sitting here on Friday going, I didn't think they'd actually do it. I know. Because it, it is the legal default and it is possible. And if it's possible, it can happen. It can happen. I think that's the worry because mm. they've been so unpredictable to date mm. in lots of cases. Yeah. That you would, that's, I think, the fear a lot of people have. Mm. So hopefully maybe something can be sorted before yeah. that. Yeah. There's an awful lot of intelligent people who are acting very stupid, it has to be said. Uh, but I don't think uh, that uh, they're dumb. They might be thick, but they're not stupid. Okay, mm. we'll see They're anyway. just acting stupid. We'll know over the next few days. Mm. On the HSE recruitment freeze, some concern about that. Joanne from Dundalk says, I thought the problem was that they couldn't get staff to recruit Will this freeze affect nurses? Yeah. (laughs) This is the bizarre thing about it. Uh, The nurses went on strike so that it would force them to recruit more uh, and to make packages available so that they retain more. Yes, that would be more enticing. Yeah. And now they're saying forget about it. Gronia is wondering if this is all due to the overspend on the National Children's Hospital. Yeah, quite possibly. A texter, there's a huge issue in relation to how money is spent in the HSE. Is money being spent efficiently? That's what needs to be asked. Mm. It doesn't appear so. If someone leaves now, will they be replaced? That is a huge concern. Mm. So if someone says gives up a position, mm. Mm. will their recruitment freeze apply to that position? Yes. Mm. yes. Yeah, that's what Paul Bell was saying. He was yeah. saying that yeah. uh, he's hearing from people uh, who've been off uh, on maternity leave and stuff and they've been told not to report back to work. 
Mary Phone did say she was listening to your interview and it is good news that they are catering for more in Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital and there's not as many people on trolleys but you say she had to attend the accident and emergency in the hospital two weeks ago mm. and there were not enough chairs for people waiting mm. to be seen because of the huge crowds in the A&E. She says a staff member had to come in and call out and say would anybody who was accompanying a patient to stand mm. to try and free up the actual chairs. Mm. Mm-hmm. She says it's not right really it's because people have to wait for hours to be seen to, to, to have to stand for that long even if you're not a patient yeah. is mm. very tough and just w- wonders about the pressure that mm. is on the staff oh, yeah. and the service. Yeah, and, and that's at its best you know uh, I mean at its best is not great but that is at its best and uh, there's standing which some people can't do for very long there's Mm. eating there's going to the toilet there's parking there's all sorts of problems John from Navin says for as long as he can remember the HSE has been in crisis and is still in crisis mode today it's like Brexit might Michael, people are Mm. sick of hearing about it. We have had countless politicians, good politicians, try and fail to address the situation over the years, but they haven't been able to solve it. Mm. None of them have really made any difference. The HSE, I feel, is the same as Brexit. There's just no solution. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Uh, But it's not all bad. Let me uh, give you a positive health uh, story because uh, Linda Kyo has been in touch with me and I wanted to mention because I think it's a wonderful thing that she's doing and she's asking me to ask you if you're listening to us if you knit or if you crochet could you please get in touch uh, because she's going to ask people uh, to knit or crochet dementia blankets uh, for patients in hospitals. Uh, A very good idea and based on a model in the UK uh, well done, Linda Keown. If everybody, anybody wants to contact Linda, get in touch with us here and we can pass on the details. Fantastic, we'll do that. In relation to illegal dumping, James from Dohada says that he cannot understand why there is so much dumping going on around the county and he's referring to Louth in this instance. He says that uh, he realises that people are having to pay for their bin collections but he thinks that as mentioned on this show previously by another listener, when there are well-known spots that they could be monitored and that maybe councillors will make this a priority at their meetings that they put some plan in place. They may do. We'll watch that space as they say. Uh, Let's uh, turn our attention to another subject if we can Marie because uh, there's a lot of interest in the life of Dundalk woman Lisa Smith who as you know was a a member of uh, the Irish Army, worked on the government jet, went uh, to Syria and is now in a refugee camp looking to come home as a nicest bride, as she's been described by uh, a lot of people. Norma Costello is a reporter with the Irish Mail on Sunday and she's been speaking to Lisa Smith and we're going to listen to a clip from this video which can be seen on extra.ie and and uh, we're told as well that there will be additional clips over the coming days. Uh, but let's take a, a listen to what's online and available to us at the moment. Do you think Ireland is a fairer society? I think, uh, like me, I want to go back to my country because why Why I want to go back to my country? Like, obviously, if people are good, you know, and they treat you right and they're kind to you and they smile at you and assist, uh, you know, you walk down the streets of Dublin, you walk down the streets of anywhere in Ireland, they'll say, how are you? Or an old man will go up and let you sit down. Quite what would you say to people that say you're an unfit mother because of... But I wasn't a mother when I left. 
I came as a single person and uh, I thought if I died here then I died but when I had a child I'd be different you know you have to take your oh, you have to take your child and look after your child now you know so she's my number one priority now that's why I want to leave and take her home with me you know and give her a good life and get her educated people here are not educated do you feel that she'll be stigmatised because of your actions no by the time that comes if she gets bigger things will be forgotten about they always are you know things just life keeps going and new stories and new things keep happening you don't know from here one year later maybe something else is going to happen maybe the Islamic State maybe want to rise up again from a different area maybe this maybe that so would you join again no <laughs> That's, no never 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 I, my biggest mistake is not having patience and seeing with my eyes what was going to happen I just ran you know ran with the crowd like I always do, ask my mum, I, I run with the crowd all the time, but, and that's what I did, I didn't listen to anyone, I didn't take any advice, I didn't do anything, I just ran, and I wish I didn't, I wish I had just took my time. That's uh, Lisa Smith uh, speaking uh, to Norma Costello on Extra.ie. You can watch that clip. More clips coming in the coming days, uh, Marie. Uh, but the interview did seem to be very, very interesting for anybody uh, who knows Lisa or is interested in following uh, the story. Uh, she was watching ISIS propaganda at a time when she decided to leave the Irish Defence Forces and said to her husband, we must go. Uh, and her husband uh, wasn't too pleased about that. But an American extremist advised her to travel to avoid being punished by Allah and sent to hellfire, unquote. She said, I didn't know what they meant. I could barely remember me my T-O-E-T's test of elementary training or how to use my gun or anything, uh, insisting uh, that the persistent fear of being sent to hellfire strengthened her decision to leave. Uh, the ISIS authorities were suspicious of her because she had been in the Irish Army and uh, her name had been underlined when she was uh, processed and she said they didn't do anything to me in the end. Maybe they trusted me. They didn't see anything from me. She also spoke about some of the lifestyles and different things that happened uh, in Syria. Homosexuals were killed and Yazidi sex slaves were sold in markets to wealthy emirs, high-ranking officials. Uh, A brutal example. One thing she witnessed, uh, she said she was in a taxi with her new husband and said, when you go up here at the roundabout, close your eyes. There's a man like this on the cross on the roundabout and his eyes are gouged out and he's wearing a red suit and you don't want to see it. It really is remarkable stuff, a a different world altogether. Uh, She didn't own a rifle, but she was asked if she'd ever been uh, involved in the conflict. Uh, But uh, she said uh, that guns were commonplace and that one day she was at home and making dinner. A bullet came in the door and stopped right on the cooker. That was time for her to go. The final straw, she claims, and she left shortly afterwards. Now she's planning on coming back home taking her young daughter with her and uh, they'll continue to live under Sharia law, she says, if she does return to Ireland. It's uh, the story of Lisa Smith uh, as it unravels. It's just remarkable. Mm. Even watching the videos, you, you say to yourself, you know, how did an ordinary girl from Dundalk end up in this situation? Like, what took her there? Mm. You know, and, it's just... Yes, and our thanks to Norma Costello, the Irish Mail on Sunday and Extra.ie. Can I go to the ATM robberies that have been happening? Because Sean phoned in in relation to that and he feels that the the spate of the robberies and uh, the fact that they're happening in rural areas reinforce the view that there needs to be more guard patrols in rural areas. He says that it's a very worrying development that in many rural areas 
bank branches have closed down and local communities rely on the ATM as the only means of getting money. And he worries that if these robberies continues, you know, continue, mm. banks will stop having ATMs outside local supermarkets or wherever. And he says that it's mad to think that they could drive a digger and do this and that nobody spots it. Mm. And that really uh, the, the government should be looking at the need to increase guard patrols. Mm. It's obviously too easy to dig them out. On property tax, we time for one more. I know we were discussing this the other day. Uh, Siobhan says, what are we paying our property tax for? I feel it's a very unfair tax for people who made huge sacrifices in order to get on the property ladder. Many have little left at the end of the month. I definitely don't think it should increase anytime soon. All right. <laughs> Well, so say all of us. It won't happen for at least 12 months. All right, we leave it there for the moment. Thanks uh, for that, Marie. Thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us. If you'd like to make comment on the programme, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1850 Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, Michelle Barnier is in Dublin. A Sinn Féin delegation is in London to meet uh, with uh, the Labour Party leader, Jeremy Corbyn. It's a very, very crucial week in uh, the Brexit negotiations. Uh, David Cullinan is Sinn Féin's Brexit spokesperson. He he joins us now. Good morning to you and thanks uh, for joining us. What do you think we might be saying at the end of this week? It's anybody's guess, Michael, I suppose. Nobody can predict exactly what's going to happen with... uh, Brexit. We haven't been able to do so now for some time and I suppose what we have at the moment is a negotiation between politicians in Britain. That's been the case for some time anyway in Westminster. But we now have formal talks between Jeremy Corbyn and Theresa May in terms of trying to chart a way forward, an agreed way forward. Mm. I hope that's possible. Um, I support the position of the British Labour Party that we have a customs arrangement, a customs union between Britain and the European Union. That would solve an awful lot of the problems for Ireland. And of course, it would avoid having any kind of border down the Irish Sea because I don't think anybody in Ireland wants either a border, a land border in Ireland or a border between Britain and Ireland down the sea. So any solution of that kind, I think, would be welcomed by people in Ireland. But it's very fraught. We don't know. There is divisions, obviously, in the Tory party and we see them manifest themselves over the course of the last number of days with newspaper articles from ministers criticising the talks and we simply have to hope now for the best that we will get an outcome that will be good for Ireland but Mm. also for Britain and for the European Union. Yeah, we read a a little bit of uh, Boris Johnson's article uh, this morning uh, about uh, the obvious Marxist Jeremy Corbyn and how he's unfit to govern in the United Kingdom and uh, he spells out his opposition to all of this as well. So if anything is possible, it won't be easy. Uh, There are reports, are there not, that there may be some compromise, though, on Mrs May's part in those talks with Jeremy Corbyn on a customs union? Well, I think you made the point for me because there can be no compromise with people like Boris Johnson because the type of Brexit that Boris Johnson wants is not one, in my view, that is shared by the vast majority of MPs in Westminster. If you look at all of the votes that took place in Westminster when they looked at a series of options, uh, the closest vote was for a customs arrangement, a Norway plus type arrangement where essentially Britain would remain in the customs union and elements of the single market. Now, Boris Johnson doesn't want that. The type of Brexit that he wants and Rees Mogg and those type of Tories want is a very hard Brexit, which will result in a race to the bottom. It doesn't want to protect the Irish border. Uh, It doesn't have any interest in Irish issues. 
and obviously he's entitled to his opinion. And I've always held the view that uh, what's necessary and the only viable solution for politics in Britain is that those in the British Labour Party who want a softer Brexit and the Lib Dems and the SNP, but also Tories uh, as well. There are many Tories who want a softer Brexit and are also supportive of Britain staying in the Customs Union. That's where the majority is in the House of Commons. Uh, they have to arrive at that point. They have to arrive at it, obviously, through a discussion and a dialogue. Um, I hope that it won't be the case of seeing one win, one win or one lose over the other. I think Britain themselves would be winners if both Theresa May and Jeremy Corman can reach an agreement and reach some consensus on a, a way forward because I think politics is being damaged in Britain because of the failure of politicians to, to reach agreement on what is a critical issue. As a political party, uh, you're in this conundrum as any of uh, the political parties are that are caught up in it uh, and uh, the European elections uh, and as to whether you'll be fielding candidates or, or not. Uh, how are you managing to prepare for that? Well, obviously, like any party, if if there is an election to be fought and if there is a change where there is parliamentary elections, EU elections in the north, Sinn Féin will contest. Uh, obviously, uh, following uh, the talks between Jeremy Corbyn and Theresa May and also the fact that Theresa May, in seeking an extension, has acknowledged that it may now be necessary mm. for Britain to hold European elections that we have to prepare we had an Arcola meeting on Saturday when the, that's exactly what the party did. We'll obviously have to move to convention very quickly. We have an MEP in Martina Anderson who has done a first-class job uh, for the people, not just in the north, but for the people mm. across the island of Ireland in relation to Brexit. So obviously we'll field the candidate. We would be very hopeful that we would hold the seat that we uh, have. Uh, but I, but, I do and and would Martina Anderson expect to be running? Well, I don't know whether she would expect to be running. I think it would be a matter for the party membership, obviously, in the North, through a convention, Michael, sure. to select no, okay. a candidate. So no, but I mean, do, do, do you, a, sorry, a, I'm sorry, Mike, I'm not asking you to, to tie that down, but I'm asking you, like, do you expect that there will be elections? Um, well, we don't know. I, I think it's more likely at this point in time. I, I, I can see a situation where there can be an agreement reached this quickly that would avoid uh, parliamentary elections to the European Parliament in Britain. I think that's a major, major problem for politicians in Britain. It's a major problem for the Tory party and for the British Labour party. But it has to be said, Michael, it's uh, their own making because they, they could have obviously resolved all of these issues over the course of the last number of years. There was an agreement reached between the British government and the European Union. The problem is that British politics could not reach an agreement. And it's only now that the major parties are sitting down and talking about some sort of consensus as we reach uh, the wire, I suppose. So that's a matter for them. Uh, if they do have to contest European elections, I think it will cause problems mainly for the Tory party, but also for the Labour party. But it may be unavoidable. And that's not really the biggest concern for, obviously, for politicians and for people in Ireland. Our clear focus has always been to ensure that whatever agreements are reached, uh, protect the Good Friday Agreement and avoid a hardening of the border. And I think we have to be thankful as well to the European Commission and to European leaders who have stood firm uh, with Ireland. And I'm somebody who is very critical of the European Union institutions. I take a very critical engagement with the EU, but I do recognise that uh, while there has been common cause anyway, because our objective has been the same, they have stood four square behind Ireland and Ireland's interests. And we just need to make sure that that continues uh, as 
the talks uh, between politicians in Britain continue because if they break down, then we are heading for a horror crash. And obviously a horror crash would be a catastrophe for for people who live on the border and I would argue people who live on the island of Ireland. Yeah, and there's a lot of concern about the peace process and the return to violence, but it's not just sectarian violence that people should be worried about. I mean, if this is extended, pushed down the road till June or 9 or 12 or 24 months from now, you're talking about European elections and they could be very divisive. If there is a deal... Uh, which will see them leaving in June or May or whatever it is, uh, well, then it's inevitable, is it not, unavoidable to have a general election because Mrs May will lose the support of the DUP and the likes of Boris Johnson and the other members of the ERG. And again, that could be very divisive. It could be, but um, it'll be very interesting if we have a general election in Britain and also a general election in the North because we've had a clamour of calls from politicians in the South, from Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, for Sinn Féin to swear an oath of allegiance to a foreign queen and to take our seats in Westminster. If there is uh, elections in the North, a general election, obviously Sinn Féin will again contest on an abstentionist basis. And it would be very interesting to see if those parties in the South put their money where their mouth is and actually contest elections on the basis of taking seats in Westminster and swearing an oath of allegiance to a foreign queen. And uh, we we'll talked about this recently. We we'll fight elections when, when yeah. they come, whether it's no, no, a okay. election or a general election. We'll fight them on the issues that are relevant to the people mm. that we represent. So we represent the vast majority of nationalists mm. who understand that politics for Ireland will not be resolved in Westminster and that the type of talks that are taking place in London today between my party leaders and the British Labour Party and the Tory party is where the business is done. Mm. It won't be in Westminster and we'll continue to give the leadership that the people that we represent deserve. Right, and I asked you last time we spoke uh, about uh, what that might mean in terms of political popularity and if it could lead uh, to a resurgence in popularity for the SDLP. Uh, You said not, uh, so we won't go over that, but uh, let's talk about the other thing that we mentioned that time, uh, which could result in gains for the UUP and losses for the DUP. That would almost be inevitable, would it not? I don't think so. I don't think really? the UUP are in any uh, shape to make gains either. Um, I don't think that unionists have much choice politically. Um, I don't see any great changes in how unionists will vote, unfortunately. Mm. I, I'm not somebody who wants to see uh, Arlene Foster's party do well in any election. I think they've had a terrible position on uh, Brexit. I think what could happen is a lot of unionists may stay at home and not vote. And I think we've seen that before. I think nationalism in the North is in a very good and in a very healthy place. They understand, obviously, that uh, Ireland's interests are protected first and foremost by Irish politicians Mm. and by the Irish government. Uh, Obviously, they look uh, to politics in in the North. They want the Assembly up and running again, but they want it up and running on a sustainable basis and on the basis of equality. And they know that my party and others will give leadership on on those issues. So we have no fears at all, Michael, about a general election if one happens uh, in the North. We have no fears in relation to a European election. There is local elections that will take place in the North. And I just mark my words because, you know, you hear an awful lot about Sinn Féin not being in touch with people in the North. And we have the ultimate abstentionists from Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael pointing the finger North. Look at the local elections that will take place in the next number of weeks. Mm-hmm. And my prediction then will make massive gains. And that will On again tell those On top of the massive parties. gains made last time. Sorry? On top of the massive gains made last time. 
Yes, and I think... Um, it was one of the best all, elections all, Sinn Féin ever had yes, last time round. Mm. Exactly, and all of the indications are from talking to people in the north, and we had, as you know, a gathering yesterday uh, in Swords where we had council candidates uh, from north and south that Sinn Féin will make big gains in, mm. in the elections in the north, and obviously we want to make gains in the south as well. But my point is that we have some politicians and we have the two big parties in this uh, state who seem to think that they're uh, more in tune with nationalist opinion than Sinn Féin is, uh, we will put that to the test in those elections. We're standing hundreds of candidates across the north. My understanding is Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael are not standing any candidates. Um, but be that as it may, I'm fairly certain that Sinn Féin will increase its uh, vote uh, in the north and we'll have a very, very good local elections and if European elections happen we'll contest those. But are, are you concerned about the other elections? The local elections will be relatively mundane as interesting uh, and uh, as um, very uh, intense as they can be, be. They'll be relatively mundane or there's the prospect that the other elections uh, could be far more serious. Uh, there is uh, the chance that if the UK crashes out on Friday let's say uh, that there would be civil unrest or that there would be riots uh, during European elections and I don't just mean in Derry or Belfast in Manchester or Liverpool if that was the case or if a deal was to be struck and they were to stay in the European Union uh, and that forced a general election again you could be looking at riots could you not? Well listen I'm always on the more optimistic side of things Michael I'm not predicting um, a hard crash I certainly don't want a hard crash I hope that there will be some consensus and I hope that the European Union will agree to an extension I think uh, riots uh, whether they're in Birmingham or London mm. or in Derry or Belfast uh, will not be good for anybody. It's a, a long extension, the only way of saying with any certainty that you won't have riots. Well, I think that's the only way we can avoid a situation where we have a hard crash, obviously, is to have uh, an extension and I think a longer extension. But all of this comes down to one simple reality that un- unless and until we get some sense from politicians in Britain because it was British politicians and mainly English and Welsh voters, obviously, who voted for Brexit, unless they spell out very clearly what exactly they want in terms of what Brexit means for them mm. and there is some consensus in Britain, then obviously we have continued uncertainty. Uh, obviously, we can't then chart the way forward and we need them to be very clear to spell out what exactly they mean by Brexit. We're seeing some shifting in the position by the Tory parties the notion that Brexit means Brexit and the red lines that Theresa May had in terms of no customs union does seem to be begin to shifting. Uh, that's what Boris Johnson was writing about this morning in The Independent, his concern that those red lines are shifting. But they have to shift. And I don't think that's a bad thing that we have a level of pragmatism coming into it at this stage as late as it is. And, you know, while some people may argue that chaos at the border or chaos in, in British politics would, would suit Ireland, I don't believe that's the case. I think chaos at the border will be a disaster for businesses, a disaster for farmers, for citizens who use the all-island economy. Uh, We don't want that. We want to see an agreement reached. But if it is the case, by accident or by design, that we end up in a hard crash, then you know Sinn Féin's clear position is to accelerate a demand for a border poll. And we said that directly to Theresa May and to Jeremy Corbyn in all of the uh, talks that we've had with those parties, that if they're so reckless to uh, create a situation where we do have a hard border or hardening of the border. That, to me, seems the most likely and logical uh, outcome of that is that a border poll is put very quickly and give people an opportunity to vote 
for United Ireland and that United Ireland remaining in the European Union. Okay. We'll be uh, uh, having a similar conversation, I'm sure, in the coming days and possibly for a a long time to come. Uh, But we leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us as always. David Cullinan is a Sinn Féin TD and is party spokesperson on Brexit. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, speaking about the local elections as we were, AN2, Ireland's newest political party, is uh, to field around 70 candidates. It hopes in uh, the elections uh, next month, and uh, its uh, party leader is Patter Tobin, a TD for Meath West, who joins us now. Good morning to you, and thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, you launched the party officially in Ballyfermot over the weekend uh, with this news. Uh, it's uh, an incredibly positive start, I think, to have so many candidates, is it not? It is. AIM2's national launch had 600 people uh, come to it from across the country, and uh, we have one of the biggest uh, platforms of candidates, really decent candidates, right across Ireland, north and south, uh, who are going to be standing in in the local elections. And that level of growth in the space of three months is incredible. And, you know, political commentators and and, and media commentators have been taken by surprise by the momentum behind AIM2 at the moment. Uh, We had really deep discussion and debate around issues such as healthcare, housing, helping small businesses, education, jobs, infrastructure and regional development at the meeting and um, people were so buoyed because the the political spectrum in this country uh, is very much a closed shop. There's a a strong feeling that there's an establishment who don't want uh, any new startups or political entrants into the system whatsoever Um, and you know People came together and they were buoyed up by the fact that there is such energy in this organization. Now, we have a job of work to do. A lot of people still don't know who AIM2 is. They might know uh, about our policies and, and, and some of our candidates, but they're just learning about who the party AIM2 is. And we believe this local election offers us an opportunity to introduce ourselves and our party's name to people. And we're hopeful of getting a raft of those candidates elected to local government across the country. North and south of the border. And you're saying that immigration will be an election issue. Well, it it was interesting how the media picked up on that because we delivered three hours of debate, as I said, on all of those different topics. Are you not not saying immigration will be an election issue? Let me finish the sentence. We didn't raise the issue of immigration whatsoever. The Irish Times then asked us a particular question uh, around uh, immigration, and we, response, uh, we responded to that. Uh, and indeed, actually, we were disappointed the Irish Times lifted about two or three sentences from our whole speech, uh, and we feel that those sentences don't, d- doesn't at all represent the context uh, of where we're coming from in this issue. You know, there's no doubt we understand that economic migration is a fact of life, indeed. In a functioning modern society, it wouldn't work without some level of migration. Our hospitals, our health services would fall apart. And we're also very clear that if a person is fleeing from war or violence or famine and comes to Ireland seeking refuge, that we have an ethical responsibility to provide refuge in accordance with international law uh, to those people. Is this a way of saying yes? But what we're saying to you there you're is... Make, you're making the arguments here. Is, it, is that a way of saying yes, you want immigration to be an election issue? No, we're not looking for the, for the issue of immigration to be an election issue, to be honest. But what we are looking for is for there to be a plan, for there to be sustainable migration, and that, that it would, uh, we would have the proper capacity uh, to build migration. Because right. um, if, if you look at, around the country at the moment, there are some... But you people, don't want to talk about it. What do, you, what do you mean you're calling for this, but you don't want to make it an election issue? No, there's a difference between an election issue 
and it being an issue that we have a proper discussion as a nation around. There is a discussion right now around the issue of migration uh, in people's homes, people's mm. houses, workplaces, on, on social media, etc. Um, a lot of politicians are hearing it uh, from their constituents. Now, I've spoken to politicians you know, around this, and they have said that they're not going to touch the issue with the barge pole. Uh, and my view is very, very, uh, it's a very careful view that we do need to have a discussion around the issue uh, about ha- making sure that it's sustainable. Okay, well, going going into an ele- going into an election, this is an issue because of what you've just said, what you're quoted as saying in the papers, what we heard you say in the bulletins. You're uh, playing the race card. No, and, and see, this is the very dangerous thing that uh, journalists shouldn't be uh, getting involved in because. This country shouldn't have areas that are censored, areas that nobody's allowed to talk about. Oh, no, areas, I'm giving you... We'll, we'll no, no, talk, hold on. No, hold on. No, 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 no hold on. We'll talk... We'll talk... Oh, 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 I will let you finish. You'll but, not but, let me finish this but, but you're saying we shouldn't... Uh, that we should not bring this up because no, uh, we won't let you talk about it. I will let you talk about it. I'm sure lots of people will let you talk about it, no. but we want to call a spade a spade. What, what we're saying here is... There, and, and this is important, and, and I do ask you to let me get two or three sentences out in a row, please, um, because I don't want this mi- misrepresented in any ways. There is a, a, a number of people around the country who have come to politicians like myself, and they have anxieties with regards, um, uh, let's say, infrastructure such as housing and healthcare and education. Now, our view is it's not the migrants' fault that there is pressure in these areas. It's actually Leo Varadkar's fault because he hasn't invested in housing, healthcare and education properly. But some people feel that, you know, there, there isn't a, a, an opportunity to discuss this except by those who are on the political extreme. And if reasonable, respectful people don't allow for a discussion of this, we will suppress the debate, push it underground and force it towards people like the, the, the Nigel Farage's of this country. And the danger is that many people, once they seek to have a respectful debate on this issue, then get called racists or uh, anti-migrants, mm-hmm. etc. We're, we're and part of a European programme. We discuss uh, the amount of refugees uh, we take in and we agree to numbers and so on. We're part of Europe and uh, we uh, make similar commitments under the European structure. And, of course, there's the freedom of movement for European citizens within uh, the European Union. Uh, so, I mean, the figures and how many people come here are a matter of discussion. They're, to be honest as well, we're not even coming at this angle from the issue of reducing the level of migration. And this is even getting confused in, in the way this has been discussed. We're just seeking that it's sustainable. And on the basis of sustainability, we have capacity for the migration that comes to Ireland. Now, that capacity can be influenced by building more houses, by providing further education, by providing for, uh, more health care. It doesn't mm. necessarily mean a reduction in the number of migrants whatsoever. How do you feel about the undocumented in this country, some 26,000 migrants who are living here illegally? What would you do with them? Well, first of all, I would say that the, the direct provision system is a disgusting and disgraceful system. The idea that we would leave people for uh, 10 and 15 years in camps uh, who don't have the ability to live. No, they're legally um, here, though. They are, but, but, but I want to say that, you know, we're, we're going to have a lot of people from the political establishment who will cast slurs on anybody that wants to have a discussion. But you know issue. I'm not talking and about... And the same refu- people themselves have immigrants in camps 
for, for decades. But I wasn't asking, I was asking country. about the undocumented migrants, people who are living in houses, married uh, with children, going to work every day, who are not here illegally. What I, what I would say, first of all, 26,000 undocumented People who migrants. are here illegally should have their, their situations uh, regularised legally. In other words, that, you know, we have to obey the law of the land when it comes to uh, immigration. That if, if, if you've come to Ireland in an undocumented fashion, mm-hmm. uh, you, you should go to the, to the authorities and the authorities should process whatever particular application uh, you, you made to mm-hmm. uh, submit at that stage according to the law. Now, you know, I would be of the view as well. So, so you deport on, a, on an individual basis, if there are people, especially young people who are living most of their lives here, have gone to school here, uh, etc., that, you know, on an individual basis, the Department of Justice and the Minister for Justice can make decisions with regards, you know, the rights and wrongs mm. of, of But generally of speaking, you deport them. Well, if, if, I would say if a person is breaking the law with, with regards to yeah, uh, migration, etc. Like et the Irish undocument break the law in America. Well, and this is this is this is the, the hypocrisy within the system in Ireland that we have a a, a government in Ireland that it is actually uh, calling for all of the Irish. Are you, are, you, are you calling on the Irish to come home? No, I'm not calling on the Irish. Why? To come home. They're, they're breaking the law. What I'm saying is that people need to have this this their situation regularised. Yes. I've asked for the if people Irish who are people, here if Irish in an undocumented fashion to simply go to yeah. the... Uh, are you asking Irish put people... Put in an application and for those applications to be processed. Are you asking Irish people who are living illegally in America to simply go and put in an application? Again, Michael, I, I, I said no to this question already. Well, what's the I will say no to it again. But, but, uh, but in, you're, in, ask, you're as asking... As now, and, and here's, here's the difficulty... There is a because lot they, of people. The, the reason you're saying no is they'd be deported. A lot of people, especially in middle class media circles, who from their ivory towers ah. are looking. Or no, hold on one second. Ah, no. Who no, are looking no, at no, people, no. especially no, no, in working no. class areas, ah, no. and telling them they are not allowed to have a debate or a discussion no. with regards capacity for. And future population growth in no, this country. No. And all we're saying I'm is, not, is... I'm not middle class no, living... I'm, I'm not, I'm I'm not, not middle class not. living in an ivory tower. <clears throat> Michael, I'm not saying that you are, but I'm, I am saying... You that did. A, no, I'm sorry. The way I, I heard, the way I heard it was you said I was middle class living in a, an ivory tower and I couldn't ask you what the difference was between the Irish illegal in America, the illegal Irish in America and people who are living in, in this country illegally. That That's, no, that's, no, igno- that's ignoring how working right, class right, people feel. And I take exception at that. We need, I wasn't calling you it. We need to take the heat out of this conversation. It's a very important issue and it's a very sensitive issue. It needs to be discussed with some level uh, of uh, calm, responsibility and respectfulness. Yeah. There is a debate happening in Ireland currently with regards to uh, migration and capacity for migration. It's happening in homes, houses, workplaces, uh, schools, on social media across the country. Right now, there is no, plant, no space for it to happen in, in general society. So it's being suppressed. It's being pushed into the margins. If you push it into the margins, it will be had by people who will use it for their own political advantage, like the Nigel Farage's uh, of this world. And what I'm saying is the best, most mature, responsible way to deal with it is to have a respectful debate and discussion mm-hmm. around it. Yeah, well, now, every time we tried to talk to you about it, you were changing the subject and trying no, to talk see, about the, something else you were asked about. The, 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 the worry I have is the minute someone says that there needs to be a link between capacity and migration, mm. 
what happened. I ask you about undocumented, and you some of, uh, some uh, of the, some, and some you try the, you try to make a fool out of me by answering about refugees. First of all, I mean, I'm, you're trying to cloud. We know, we, we you're trying to cloud. You're trying to cloud the discussion intentionally, and, and that brings about suspicion. First of all, we've had a lot of dis- a lot of discussions over the last, I think, about 15 years at this stage, and I've never treated like you like a fool or anything uh, else in that regards. But what I'm saying to you is, it is interesting that there are many people, you know, who are in that political, uh, you know, chattering class, mm. who are using words like racist and xenophobe around uh, this particular issue and yet they're the same people who have forced tens of thousands of people into direct provision for for, for decades and there's a hypocrisy in this and the key issue here as well michael mm. is into is the biggest threat to the political establishment in this country currently we have grown at a phenomenal rate we would not be talking about this issue whatsoever yep. had there not been 600 activists at the national launch of AIM2 in Dublin on the weekend. The media can't challenge us on our policy. So what they will do is they will misrepresent our policy and then they'll seek well, to do a stand in that regard. I don't know. I, I was only asking you about it. Uh, I was uh, apparently getting answers to questions I hadn't asked and uh, I'm sure the people uh, who know my working class background would be very amused to think of me being well, part of a political chattering class. First of all, Michael, I'm not referring to yourself in, yeah. in, that, in that regard. No, I'm not. It's impossible. But it's I, impossible all I'm saying that. is that yeah. I suppose we do need to have a respectful discussion on this. Mm. Um, and okay, we'll, we'll, we'll the, do, we, the we'll, best way to, the best way to deal with the capacity shortages is actually for the state to do what it's meant to do with regards to investment in housing, healthcare, and education. Okay. For, for far too long in this world, you know, one rich person tells one poor person that the reason they're poor mm. is because another poor person is coming. Okay, to I have to go to talk to somebody about uh, the plight refugees are uh, enduring, fleeing from Syria. Uh, so I have to leave it there. But uh, thanks indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. That's uh, Patrick Tobin, uh, the founder of A and Two, who's uh, an independent TD for Meath West. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, if uh, you were listening uh, to the ad break uh, there, you'd have heard how you can help uh, the lives of people like Hannah fleeing Syria through helping Trokra. Sean Farrell is head of uh, Trokra's International Division. Uh, good morning to you, Sean, and uh, thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, I take it uh, you've uh, a lot of experience with people who have had lives in Syria like Hannah, trying to leave those lives and who you've met as uh, uh, refugee camps in uh, the Lebanon. Indeed, Michael, and good morning to you. So last week um, I was in Lebanon and I met literally hundreds of people who have fled from Syria. So the little girl on the Trokra box this year is one of literally millions of people who have left Syria over the last 10 years. And many of those people find themselves in absolutely desperate situations. It's an incredible country, isn't it? I mean, it was a a very beautiful country, but how it's changed in the course of the last 10 years. And with that infrastructural change has come about a significant change in the lives of uh, the people who are citizens of Syria. Indeed, I think the conflict that has happened in Syria has been absolutely catastrophic for the population of the country. Many millions are displaced within the country and we think there's about 6 million people have been forced to leave Syria. So where I was last week, I was in Shatila camp, which is a camp in Beirut, the capital of Lebanon, where now many, many Syrians are living in really poor conditions. Um, and I think the plight of Syrians right across the Middle East remains really, really difficult given what has happened in their home country and unable yet to go back. Um, Many of them lost their houses, 
their lands have been taken or they're not able to go back to their lands and many of them live in situations of real and deep poverty in places like Lebanon. Tell us about your experience, uh, Sean. From your perspective, was it difficult to witness? It is, it's extremely difficult to witness. I think it's particularly looking at the plight for children. And many of the people who left Syria were young mothers with, with young children. And many of them, you know, walked, made, made however they could and got to Syria. And then, and then after that, they were, you know, put into camps or they're in different places around Lebanon. And really their plight is awful. Like at least some of the things that I saw was Troka's work on the ground mm. is making a big difference. We were providing shelter to people who had no homes, who had lost everything. We were providing food, we were providing water and also helping people to even think about how they're going to live over the next couple of years, providing what, livelihoods, etc. What do they have? Uh, no homes, no food. Uh, do they have possessions? Do they have money? Well, I think right across the world, Michael, when I was in Lebanon last week and even a number of months ago being in northern Uganda and seeing South Sudanese uh, refugees fleeing the conflict there, like I think it's hard to believe what people arrive with. Literally, um, I would have met women who had one little knapsack. So obviously their most prized thing that they carry is their children and maybe one little tiny rucksack with everything that they've managed to take. So if you can imagine, they leave with everything left behind, their houses, their possessions, whatever they had back in Syria. As you said, Syria was a beautiful country. People would have had possessions. They would have had things in their houses. They would have had a reasonable standard of life. Everything is now gone. They arrive with little knapsacks, maybe with just a few changes of clothes and nothing else maybe a small bit of money. But even the women I met in northern Uganda who had fled the conflict in South Sudan, they arrived literally with nothing, no Mm. money. Um, Some of them had walked three, four days and four nights without food to get to a place where they could even get a bite to eat and some water. So I think very often when we look at the conflicts around the world, when people flee those conflicts, they literally flee with absolutely nothing. Yeah, well, they arrive with tears in their eyes quite often, uh, I think. Broken people quite typically because of how their lives have been turned upside down and the ordeal that's involved in fleeing. I did have the experience of being in a a refugee camp once. Uh, I'm not sure if you'd agree, Sean, but you can see so much in the eyes of the people who end up in these places. You completely can, and I suppose if you've looked into those eyes, Michael, and saw, you know, people carry with them the trauma of what happened to them. First of all, um, if it was a conflict or a war, they carry those memories. And then also they carry the additional trauma of the worry for their children. I suppose when I've been in refugee camps around the world, kids will play anywhere. Mm. Like last week I saw kids running around in the camp in appalling conditions, but they had made toys out of bits of sticks and a few plastic bottles and whatever. And kids will be kids. They'll, they'll play in any circumstances. But I think it's when you meet, you know, mothers, fathers, and as you said, what you see in their eye is, eyes is the, the worry for what's going to happen to their family, what's going to happen to their children. Will those kids ever be able to get back into school? At least last week I saw some children in school. There are some uh, Syrian children now. I stood in a classroom um, in Lebanon, and I looked at Syrian kids learning maths. But then when I walked outside the classroom, I saw hundreds of children uh, running around, playing in, 
you know, squalid yeah. conditions where there just wasn't, there wasn't enough school places. Yeah, and, and as you say, when you've seen that, you do remember it, what it's like for those people in terms of worrying and in terms of the stress and trauma of what they saw. And we may not be able to solve uh, the problems of uh, the world, uh, but the people who end up in the refugee camps didn't cause them either, Sean. That's uh, why you'd ask people to help you, to help them through trocra.org or 1850-408-408. I have to leave it there for the moment, Sean. Thank you very much, though, for joining us today. Thank you very much, Michael. Sean Farrell is head of Trocra's International Division and brings our programme to its conclusion today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie LMFM podcasts. Brought to you with Cartmacross Credit Union. Getting hitched? Cartmacross Credit Union likes to say I do when financing your wedding loan. O'Neill Street, Cartmacross or cartmacrosscu.ie Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.